The Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Danny Korchmar is a renowned guitarist, producer, songwriter, and session musician who played and wrote for Carole King, James Taylor, Don Henley, Jackson Brown, Billy Joel, and so many others. In the 1970s and 1980s, Danny was a member of The Section, which also featured Leland Sklar, Wadi Wachtel, and Russ Kunkel. The Section is now back together and performing worldwide as the immediate family. And I've got Danny on the line right now from Los Angeles. Hi there, Jim. Hi, Danny. Welcome to the show. Great to talk to you. I have to say that I really like your uh, your new single, Toughest Girl in Town. Fantastic. Great. Glad to hear it. When I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I remember seeing your name and Leland Sklar and, and all the rest of the immediate family on hundreds of albums. And I always thought, who are these guys? Because they're as prominent as the artists whose albums they were playing on at the time. Well, we were very lucky. We got to play with all our, all our pals. It was a wonderful community at that point, in the 70s especially. It was a really, really terrific community. We all knew each other really well. And we were all thrilled to work together. Um, you had classical musicians on your what your mom's side of the family? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And were they encouraging you, your mom and your dad, or or mainly your mom to to get you know involved in music? Well, it was my mother encouraged me mostly. My father was afraid he was going to have to support me the rest of his life, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he wasn't too you know too thrilled about it. But my mother was supportive, and uh, the family of musicians I came they were really serious, wonderful musicians. And uh, I mean, I'm you know I'm nowhere near on the level of excellence that my mother's uh, father and uncle were on. They were gene- they were brilliant, brilliant musicians. But I must have inherited. Maybe I got a little something from them. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. Um, and when you started checking out the music scene in New York City, you were seeing artists like John Coltrane. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, it was. New York was incredible back then, and uh, it was amazing to be able to walk in and see. John Coltrane with his quartet, the original quartet. We just walked in. I think it was the half note of the five spot, one of those joints. It was like, you know, there was no line, there was no nothing. We just walked in, and here's one of the greatest quartets that ever ever played music. And uh, we got to see an awful lot of people, you know, uh, in New York in the in the, uh, in the in the 70s, in the late 60s and 70s. Incredible. And also, did you go to the Apollo a few times? All the time. We used to go there pretty much every week. Every Friday, there'd be a new show. And me and my pals would go up there, and we got to see just everyone you could imagine. Uh, James Brown multiple times, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and, and uh, you know Little Richard, and, and uh, just just every uh, rhythm and blues and soul. Like Otis Redding, all those all those incredible acts. I loved that music, and uh, so we, we went up there. And at the time, they were glad to see us up there in Harlem. Um, after uh, Dr. King was was killed, you didn't you didn't go up there anymore, you know. But uh, Previous to that, we went up there all the time and were welcome. Your first experience doing session work in New York was, what, with Carol King and Jerry Goffin for demo sessions? Yeah, that's the first experience I had in the studio. Carol uh, came down to the club and saw my band play, liked the way I played, and started calling me to play on uh, their demos. It was Goffin and King were signed to a publishing company and uh, wrote songs and made demos of them so artists would cover them. And so that was my first experience, and, and uh, working with Carol was 
incredible. She was, you know, an extraordinary, not just as a songwriter, which we all know she's a genius-level songwriter, but also as a producer and arranger. She knew what she wanted, and I learned a tremendous amount from playing on those demos about how to play or what to play in the studio. And you have to wonder, too, right, how does she keep coming up with all this prolific material because she was just exploding? Well, that's right, you know, uh, that's what she did was write songs. Since she was a teenager, so that was uh, that's what she did. It didn't occur to her that it was hard or difficult or impossible. <laughs> she just turned, turned them out, and a lot of them were written in one day, very quickly, and they were great. You know? So I had a feeling for it. Was there a session scene that you knew of in Los Angeles that prompted you to move out there? I mean, I, of course, the Wrecking Crew was doing a lot of work, but what was your uh, feeling on on making that move? Well, I went out there to uh, play with a psychedelic rock band called Clear Light, and I was with them for only about three or four months. Uh, but uh, they needed somebody, and I wanted to get out of New York at that time. Uh, New York was starting to be a dead end. And when I got out there, uh, shortly after I moved out there, Peter Asher moved out there, and Carol did too. So we had the nucleus of a, uh, a, a scene already. And everyone knew everyone else uh, in L.A. at that time. Uh, and everyone was very, you know, there, were, there was no bad vibes. Everyone was very helpful uh, and, and uh, you know, was friendly and helped. We all helped each other out like that. Yeah, and I know that you had a great experience, not only with them, but also with uh, Lou Adler. Right. Well, Car- uh, Lou had, decided, had signed Carol to make albums, and she wanted to make them albums. Uh, she wanted to record under the rubric of, of the city because she wasn't comfortable about being a solo artist at that time. And of course, Lou saw the uh, uh, Lou, being the visionary he is, you know, saw the potential that Carol had with all those great songs, and and uh, he stuck stuck with her and, and she with him, and she made her uh, Tapestry was her third album. Uh, that was the one that that kicked in. Lou knew he knew what was going on, and he set the whole scene up make Carol very comfortable, and sure enough, it it took off like crazy, as you know. And you worked on Tapestry on that album? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking at the time? Because we all know every song was a winner on that album. What were you thinking as a musician as you're doing this stuff? Well, you know, she had already had, uh, I'd already played on two albums before that, which I thought were great. So I knew she was great, and I knew the songs were great. I didn't know whether it would catch on or not. Because I was savvy enough by that point to realize that, you know, you could be really super talented but not have, you know, the luck or the timing going for you that would uh, enable you to rise to stardom, you know. Uh, and, but she did. So when we were doing uh, Tapestry, I knew all the songs were great and uh, really enjoyed playing them. Playing one of Carol's songs is an education, learning it because she has a lot of moves and you have to figure out what she's doing and how to translated to guitar. So that's what I was thinking about. Was I thinking, oh, this is going to be used? No, I did not think that way. <laughs> we, we just thought about, this is a great song. we got to make it as good as we can. And that, that's it, you know. Uh, we didn't walk around. I was walking around saying, this is a hit. This is it. We don't know what right. a hit was. So uh-huh. we, knew, we knew what great was, but not necessarily what was going to be a hit. The difference between you guys in, uh, you were call, I guess you were called the section then, now the immediate family, is that you worked in the right. studio with these artists, but then you also went on on the road with a lot of them, Carol and and James Taylor, right. uh, as opposed to the Wrecking Crew. Those guys said, "Now nah, we make our money in the studio." Right. They were strictly studio musicians, and they were, didn't want to leave town because they were afraid when they got back, someone else would be in their chair. You know, someone else would take up right. their gig. So 
none of them ever left uh, Los Angeles. But we did. We would, it was a different scene for us. We we loved playing with James. We you know, and Peter Asher was wise enough to want us to be James's band on the road as well as playing on record. So uh, we were glad to do it. We loved it. I know when you came off of uh, James' tour, you started rehearsing, I believe, right away for Linda Ronstadt's tour. What were those first rehearsals like? And hearing that voice coming out of that tiny girl. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was you know very happy to have been offered that big gig of playing with. So I learned the tunes at home, and then went to the first rehearsal. And as soon as she started singing, it went cut through me like a knife. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. Yeah. It was so, it was like a tremendous power for a little girl. And uh, it just cut right through you. So I was I was thrilled. Also, uh, Linda was doing all kinds of different material. Instead of just doing tunes, you know, like, like James and Jackson would just do tunes they wrote. Linda was doing a, a Hank Williams tune, an Elvis Costello tune. You know, a, a Buddy Holly tune, a Jim Webb tune. So right. It's a really heavy variety. So it was, it was great. I loved playing with it. Uh, by the way, before I let you go, it's notable to mention that you were part of Jackson Brown's tour where you recorded a live album on the road. And right. I'm wondering, what did the audience, how did they react when they're hearing Running on Empty for the first time? Well, amazingly, they reacted like they already knew it. And uh, this, at the first gig we played, um, we hit that tune and, and, and some other, you know, all the tunes on there are, are recorded live. And uh, the audience responded to those songs like they'd known them their whole lives, like they, were already, like they had already been released and they knew them. It was astonishing. Uh, we got a huge round of applause after we did uh, Running on Empty. And uh, at that point, we knew, hey, you know, we're in business here. Let's go. I know the immediate family uh, documentary is coming. Is it out right now? Can, can we view that somewhere? No, it isn't. It isn't out quite yet. Um, there's a, there's a, a trailer for it that's available. Right. Uh, but it has it hasn't been released yet. It'll probably be on one of the streaming platforms fairly soon. And the toughest girl in town that is on all digital platforms. Can't wait to, uh, right. to to see the film. Just an honor, I can't tell you. I've been a big fan of yours for, for so long. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Danny. Thank you very much. For the, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. It is just amazing how many albums Danny played on over the years. Besides the aforementioned, he also performed with Warren Zevon, Van Halen, Toto, and so many others. And it's not like the Wrecking Crew, who were sort of the unsung heroes in the studio. The section was a known commodity. Well, that finishes off this episode of the Fake Show Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you.